Good morning, Love Chapel Hill family. My name is Annalise and I'm a junior at UNC and I just want to say welcome to our Sunday morning today. Um, if you're new with us, um, if this is your first time worshiping or you have worshiped with us for a while but haven't reached out, um, I invite you to fill out the connect card that's either in the link on the Facebook page or in the comments on the YouTube, however you're joining us today. Um, if you have questions or want to tell us about yourself, I encourage you to fill that out um, and start a conversation with us. We would love to get to know you, tell you about our church family, and hear about you and your story. Um, welcome to our church family, and happy Sunday, everyone. Bye. Hey, everyone. My name is Joel, and I was wondering if you had the opportunity to go check out our website, lovechapelhill.com, lately. Uh, this is a great place to go to let us know if you have any needs to reach out to us. Also, there's a great list right there on the main page of many different options of ways to connect while we are apart. And uh, we would love for you to check that out. Also, we've added something new this week, so you really want to pay attention, especially if you're in college. Our College Ladies Small Group is starting back on October 19th at 8 p.m. Sarah Probst is leading and she's really excited for you to come join her. You find all the Zoom information right there on the website on the main page, along with all the other small group and prayer meeting options. And we would just love for you to come and, and visit lovechapelhill.com and connect with us, grow with us, and be together. Peace with my Lord. 
Lord so near Leaning on the everlasting arms Oh, I'm leaning Oh, I'm leaning Safe and secure from all alarms Leaning Oh, I'm leaning Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning on the everlasting arms Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Hey, Love Chapel Hill. We're going to keep rolling today with the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we've been studying them together and the way that God speaks his word through them then and also how he's speaking to us now. Uh, we see that challenge where we started out uh, with the prophet Amos uh, and this this imagery that he gives to us of what God is calling us into and of what God um, uh, commands of us. Uh, this sense of justice rolling like a river and at the same time righteousness like a never-ending stream. And in the biblical language, in the biblical imagination, uh, those two things cannot be separated from each other. If righteousness is a right relationship with God, then justice is a right relationship with each other. And that fulfills the great commandment. And Jesus says that the great commandment sums up all of the law and the prophets. And so that's the challenge that we have and the way that the prophets are speaking to us uh, as they call us to embody that justice and righteousness together, holiness and love together, flowing together to form this kingdom tide. So today uh, we're going to be in the prophet Jeremiah. Last week might have been a little bit heavy uh, for some of you as we were talking about uh, Jonah's call to repentance and the way that we were uh, hammering on that idea of repentance. And so if that was a little bit heavy for you, uh, then don't worry because this week uh, we are in Jeremiah and Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet or sometimes the prophet of doom. So, yeah, um, the uh, the way that he writes, it actually uh, spans across several different genres of writing and of prophetic literature. Um, so there's there's poetry there. There are visions. There's narrative. Uh, one of the scholars even put it this way. Um, that part of his writing is seen as doom poetry, doom poetry, which is really interesting. So that made me think of, uh, of our very own Pastor Allison, uh, who publicly confesses that in her teenage years, she went through a goth phase. So she is probably our in-house expert on doom poetry. So you should reach out to her about that. Uh, so 
It's such an interesting image that we get of Jeremiah, weeping prophet, prophet of doom, doom poetry. And at the same time, this is the person uh, who also is responsible for so many of these verses that we cling to with so much hope. And so we don't just see the weight of God's judgment, but we also see the hope of redemption all the way through Jeremiah's writing. This is the person who begins the book quoting God speaking to him. And so many of us cling to this hope of the way that God sees us. Uh, as God says to him, uh, I knew you even before I formed you in your mother's womb. I knew you and I've set you apart for myself. And so many of us take hope in that kind of language. Uh, in chapter 29, where we're actually going to be today, um, there's this verse there that many of you probably claim as your life verse. And it's such a beautiful hope as God says to the people, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And so we see these two things colliding in Jeremiah, and it's it's so often throughout all of the prophets, uh, this reality of confronting us with the reality of our sin, but that the answer to the reality of our sin is the depth of God's grace and the hope of redemption that we have in him. That is the gospel. Jesus embodies that with his life, and Jesus preaches that good news to us, and he lives that good news that because God is holy, we could never make our way to him because of our sin. But because God is love, he comes to us. He makes his way to us, opening up the way of salvation and inviting us into a reconciled relationship with him through the sacrificial death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and even death itself. And so that's our hope. We see that through the prophets. We see it embodied in Jesus. And we see it exemplified in what Jeremiah has to say to us. So uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Deborah um, and also several times over the last several years, we have come back to this uh, piece of history um, of God's relationship with his people. And it's this cycle that we refer to as the cycle of rebellion and rescue. And so over and over again, we see this pattern um, where God has always been faithful to the covenants that he's made with his people. Uh, he never breaks his word. He never breaks his covenant. Uh, it, is, it is sealed with this loyal love that is a part of who God is. And yet over and over again, as humanity, we break our covenant with God. And so that cycle of rebellion uh, begins in that place where we turn away from him and we walk ourselves right into brokenness because of turning away from him. Uh, that's where the story that Jeremiah is in begins. Uh, his ministry is during this time of rebellion. And so he calls the people to this next phase of the cycle, which is this phase of repentance. And often in, the, in Israel's history, after this time of rebellion and brokenness, their eyes are, are uh, opened up and they respond with repentance. And how does God respond when they repent is with rescue 
and then bringing them into a time of renewal. And so we see Jeremiah operating right in between this time of rebellion and calling them to uh, this life of repentance. And so that's what a lot of his message is as he points ahead uh, to the judgment that is coming to them because of their rebellion. Uh, it is anchored at the same time in this hope of rescue and renewal if they will open their eyes, if they will open their ears, and if they will respond with repentance. Unfortunately, as the story plays out, we see uh, that instead of responding with repentance, they continue to rebel. And much of the prophetic words or all of the prophetic words that Jeremiah speaks, uh, they come to fruition and they become reality. One of the ways that that becomes reality for the people uh, is what we call the Babylonian exile. So King Nebuchadnezzar, who is over uh, uh, the empire of Babylon, attacks Jerusalem uh, and takes this first wave of exiles out of Jerusalem back to Babylon. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks back with Daniel, uh, Daniel and, and, um, and then his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, all of them being these um, young people that are taken into exile. Uh, out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. So we see these stories overlapping here. Uh, so Jeremiah says that this is what is coming uh, and he promises that this is coming and it comes to fruition. And so we, we see that happening. Uh, where we're going to be today is a letter of hope that Jeremiah writes to those who are going into exile. Um, and so it's in chapter 29. And even in your Bibles, a lot of them, it will have this heading, a letter to the exile. So even in the midst of this brokenness that they are experiencing, even as they are in the midst of this judgment because of their rebellion, still there is this thread of hope that runs through it. Here's what he has to say in chapter 29, uh, starting with verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 
I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. It will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So here we have God's people experiencing chaos, uh, experiencing destruction of Jerusalem uh, and what will be destruction of even the temple, uh, which was the seat of God's presence for them. Um, We see them going through this absolute deconstruction of their entire story as a people. Uh, Such a disorienting time for them. So it wasn't just the immediate trauma of what they were going through, but also uh, that sense of understanding of who they were as a people, that sense of shared story, shared memory as God's people. Uh, So as they are taken into exile away from their home there uh, in Jerusalem, remember what God's Uh, promise was to Abraham. So this stretches back to that history that they have with Abraham, that God made this covenant with him um, and that this would be their land and the place that he had promised to settle them as a people. And that piece of their storyline gets broken in this moment uh, and destroyed in this moment. Uh, Think about the temple getting destroyed um, and then being taken away from that. Uh, It's not just that that history that goes back to Solomon building the temple, but it stretches all the way back to Moses. When God promises Moses that his presence is going to be there with his people uh, and Moses builds what is a a foreshadowing of the temple that is to come uh, in this tabernacle, this tent where God sets up his dwelling with his people uh, through that time of the, the wilderness journey after Uh, their exodus out of Egypt. Uh, And so it's this place where they see the very presence of God with them uh, in the temple and that is uprooted and destroyed and they are cut off from that. Uh, Think about the fact that that their king is overthrown and defeated. Um, And that goes back to the promise that God made to King David. And this promise that they had held so close that God gives David this covenant that a son of David will sit on the throne and reign as the king over God's people for all of time and forever. And that is broken in this moment in their eyes and the way that they understand themselves and then the way that they understand their shared story as a people. It is destruction. It is deconstruction. It is even, in a sense, decreation. 
It's like we're moving backwards back through this story, this redemptive history, and each phase gets broken in this moment all the way back to now where we find ourselves in chaos once again, which is where the creation story in Genesis begins for the people of God. It has all fallen apart and they find themselves in this place of decreation, in this place of utter chaos. And what, God, what does God say to them in the midst of that chaos? What does God tell them to do? What is God's word and command to them? Create. Create. In a moment of chaos, God's people are called to create. This is so interesting, uh, especially when you think about against the backdrop of the Babylonian empire. Uh, just like the people of Israel had this origin story that goes back to the book of Genesis, uh, the people of Babylon had an origin story as well of how the universe gets created, of how the world gets created that attempts to explain the natural world in which we live. The story that the Babylonians lived by was quite different uh, and was quite the opposite. In that story, there are two rival gods, two enemy gods who go to war against each other. And in this battle of war, in this violence against each other, uh, one of them is cut in half and what spills out creates the fabric of the world in which we live. That's the backdrop of the Babylonian origin story. That's how they believed things came to be. And that makes up the fabric of the world in which we live. Now put that against the Hebrew origin story of there being this chaos and God bringing order to it. And out of the overflow of holy love of God, he creates all of the world and even creates humanity made for relationship with him. It's a completely different story. But in this moment of time, as they look around them at the chaos, as they look at the violence and the war and the destruction, it seems quite clear that the Babylonian story is winning, that that's the story that is triumphing in the moment where the Hebrew origin story is out of chaos comes order and then this existence of shalom, this Hebrew word for peace, this Hebrew word for wholeness and completeness. And instead, all around them, they see not wholeness, but brokenness. So what should they do in the midst of the chaos? How should they respond to this reality? God gives them this statement, create, create. I find it so Interesting. The other prophets, some of Israel's other prophets, the false prophets were just trying to speak um, only words uh, that they thought were encouragement, uh, but they weren't coming from God. So they were basically telling the people, hey, listen, this is going to blow over. Don't even unpack your bags. Live out of your suitcase because God's going to bring you back home really soon. But Jeremiah says, no, that's not what God is saying. This is for a long period of time. This is going to be for the next 70 years. But what does God want you to do in the midst of that chaos? He says, join me in my act of creating. 
I want you to join with me and I want you to partner with me. And out of the chaos, I want you to do what I did with the chaos. I want you to create. In the Garden of Eden, God built a dwelling place for humanity. And now in the thick of exile, God is saying to his people, I want you to build dwelling places as well. I want you to build homes to live in and to put down roots. In the Garden of Eden, he plants that garden and he cultivates that garden. And now he tells his people in the midst of exile, I want you to partner with me in that. And I want you to plant gardens and to cultivate as well. In the Garden of Eden, he gives Adam and Eve to each other in this flourishing relationship with each other and with him. And he says to his people here, I want you to do the same. I want you to create environments where relationships can flourish, where you cultivate flourishing relationships with each other and with me. I have not forgotten you. I have not left you. In times of chaos, God's people create. In times of chaos, God's people create. We are about that work of shalom, of bringing about wholeness, where there is brokenness, being a part of healing it, where things have fallen apart, being a part of setting it right again. The image uh, in the mind of of, of the, the Hebrew people, when they often spoke of that word shalom uh, that we translate as peace, but it's so much deeper than just peace. Um, it's not just an absence of conflict, uh, but it's this presence of wholeness and completeness. They would often use this image of a stone wall where all of the stones were aligned and in place, keeping the wall as it was supposed to be. And that's part of what shalom means. It means picking up the broken pieces and putting them back where they belong and being a part of rebuilding the ruins that we can often find ourselves in. It's not just that God tells his people in exile to do this. And it's not just that he's calling us to do this in our moments of chaos that we find ourselves in as well. But Jesus also models this for us. Jesus does the same thing. In the garden, God creates a dwelling place for humanity and he dwells with them. But in Jesus, he is God made flesh who comes to dwell among his people. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the garden where he plants that garden and invites us to be a part of cultivating with him, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener and you are connected to me in that as you abide in me, you are the branches. And as you abide in me, you will bear much fruit and you cannot bear fruit on your own apart from me. And in that image of Adam and Eve and that flourishing relationship together, Jesus has come to heal the brokenness of humanity's relationship with God, but also the brokenness of our relationship with each other. Once again, righteousness and justice, a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. And that is fulfilled 
in the person of Jesus. He's inviting us to join him in that, to partner with him in that. And in the midst of chaos, he's calling us to create, to plant gardens and to plant vineyards. As one of my favorite poets, uh, Wendell Berry puts it, to plant sequoias. I love this. In, In one of his poems, he says, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Let your main crop be a forest that you will not live to harvest. It's so beautiful when you think about the lifespan of a sequoia and how long it takes for it to come into its fullness of what it was meant to be. For us to plant a sequoia seems foolish because we're never going to live to see the end result of that. We're never going to live to see the fulfillment of what we set out to do, of that seed that we put in the ground. But we're not called to live to see the end of it. We're called to be a part of the beginning of it. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Plant a harvest and a crop that you won't be around to see the fullness of. I want to end today by asking a few questions. Uh, borrowing from the teaching style of Jesus, who did a whole, lot, a whole lot less talking than I do, most likely, and, and a lot more of asking questions. So I'm trying to learn from him. And uh, I want to end today with just a series of questions for you. So I invite you to open up your mind, open up your ears, open up your heart. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to press these questions into us as a church family together. What seeds are you planting right now? What future fruit are you sowing in this moment? What are you intentionally growing or allowing to grow? in the garden of your soul. Many of us want to take an organic approach to life and we think that means just kind of hands off. But if you leave a garden bed to itself, it gets overrun with weeds that actually ended up strangling out the life of what you were desiring to plant. So it's not only the question of what are you intentionally growing, but also what are you allowing to grow that you know needs to be uprooted or cut back? What will you reap tomorrow? What are the the patterns that you are developing or are allowing to develop in your life right now that you know there's a harvest coming from that? Is it something you're sowing intentionally? What will you reap tomorrow? How are you sowing shalom? How are you contributing to shalom in this world? What stones are you picking up and placing back in the wall in those spaces of brokenness? Or what stones are you picking up and aiming at someone else? How are you intentionally participating in building shalom 
here and now. How are you rebuilding broken places? And now these last four questions that are overlapping with each other. How are you building and planting? Number one, in your soul. Number two, in your relationships. Number three, in the church. And number four, in the community beyond us. There's no doubt that we find ourselves in moments of chaos right now. The question at hand is, how are we going to respond? In this letter that God sends to his exiles through his prophet Jeremiah, we get this challenge. In moments of chaos, God's people create. Then 
My name is Adrian, and I really love those moments when the Old Testament of Scripture seems to speak right into what's happening today. And I really feel like that's what's happening in this passage of Jeremiah that we studied this morning. Our Creator God tells His people that it is good to create and to cultivate. Especially when times are uncertain and scary, He calls on them to create just as He created His people. This world is so, so uncertain, but there's always something new to make or to plant or to bake or to write. And creating in faith is a part of what God wants for us. It's an opportunity to see something new come from our own hands and to do something that we were designed to do. It's also pretty neat that the same God who created galaxies and the Grand Canyon and literally the entire state of Maine wants to see what we come up with. Like he wants to look at our plants that we grow and our houses that we build. Our God is personal. He brings peace when we seek him and he wants the very, very, very best for us. So I hope this passage has encouraged you and maybe even inspired you. If you can go out in the next couple days and try to create something, um, but have an amazing week. <laughs>